I so enjoyed interviewing your daughter, Danielle. And it was after our discussion that I kind of started to be very reflective of my life and my time. And uh, that's when I got myself, please pass it on to her. That's when I got myself a little part-time job where I work, I think it's a maximum of 16 hours a week maximum. And it just seems to give me a little bit of structure, Scott. So uh, she'll be so pleased to hear that. She'll be pleased that uh, it affected you that way. She's had lots of response from different people who help who say it helped them get through bad situations or whatever. And I, I've heard your your interview with her and it was it was a good one. But good. she'll be really delighted to hear that from, uh, from you. Well, now you're a multi-published author and sometimes getting the feedback as soon as I posted on my Facebook page about our interview, I had uh, family members message me and say, we have every one of her books. And I had oh, no, <laughs> I had no clue, you know, so, but well, she know. has a popular podcast too, the medieval podcast. Yeah. And now another one, um, you know, but yeah, that one's uh, for, for Patreon subscribers only, the second one. But yes, it's quite popular. And she's up to just, we're just about up to 200 episodes. I say that because I do sound editing for her. So she's just about at the 200th episode. Cool. So she does have a following for sure, both ways. Cool. So we need to talk about you. Um, so our listeners know, welcome everyone to JCV Art Studio. This is season five. My name is Joanna. And I am the author of The Unraveling and Dealer's Child. And today I have, this is going to be a really cool discussion, multi-published author Scott Overton with me. Now, do you recognize that voice? Do you recognize his voice? Okay, people back, in, I don't want to say back east, in the east. Scott was a well-known radio morning host for more than 30 years in Ontario, Canada. And Scott has now been building a second career as an author. His radio-themed debut novel, Dead Air, was shortlisted for a Northern Lit Award in 2012. And his science fiction thriller novels, The Primus Labyrinth, Naida, and The Disposition of Dylan Knox, have been well-received too. Um, Readers are comparing his work to that of Michael Crichton. Now, Robert J. Sawyer, the Hugo Award-winning author, with respect to Scott's latest book, Augment, Na Augment Nation, Robert J. Sawyer says, Scott Overton is a terrific writer, and his vision of tomorrow is both realistic and frightening. Read this book. Scott's a member of the Canadian Authors Association, SF Canada, and a past president of the Sudbury Writers Guild. Scott, welcome to the art studio. Well, thank you so much for inviting me, Joanna. It's a very great pleasure to be here. Thanks again. Uh, I tell you, having a podcast, I'm always surprised, you know, and it's a delightful surprise. I just finding the connections and who knows who and and it yeah. So let's talk. Let's talk about your latest novel, Augment Nation. Right. It's, 
oh my God, it's compelling. And as I'm reading it, Scott, I literally want to get my hands and hold my head together. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Are you a science fiction reader yourself, Joanna, usually? No. Uh Now Now that's the thing. That's a reflection on your writing because I was drawn in. Okay. And so before we get get into it, let's get that standard question out of the way. So our listeners know what we're talking about. And that is, can you give us uh, a brief summary of what Augment Nation is about? Absolutely. Yeah, it takes place about 20 years from now, because this is when I envision the technology coming to the state that I describe in the book. The main character is a young man who has a a computerized brain augment implanted in his head when he's about 14, because he's in a car accident, has some brain damage, and has a condition whereby he can't recognize faces or even many uh, ordinary objects. So he gets this experimental augment implanted in his brain to help him correct that problem, but it can do much more, and especially with upgrades. By the time he's learned all the ins and outs that it can do, including it has a direct uh, connection to the internet at some point, uh, there are many, many uh, abilities it gives him. But by the time he's an adult, these have become the latest hot consumer tech item. They've taken over from smartphones. So people have these computerized brain augments. They call them brain-computer interfaces that are not necessarily implanted at that point, but accessories like our smartphones now. Well, a direct brain-to-internet connection, how many ways can that go wrong? So he finds himself in a unique position, not being a heroic type particularly, but he's uniquely placed and skilled and experienced to help push back to against uh, help people, especially other people push back against some of the abuses of this technology that I think we can probably all imagine. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, as I'm reading it, I literally wanted to hold my head together. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh. So in the materials I received, from Mickey Mickelson. There was a great question. Yeah. And it addresses that this novel is set only 20 years from now. And the question was, is brain-computer interface technology really that advanced? What well, do you, you know, yeah. first of all, I mean, it goes back to the 1920s is when uh, the electrical character of our brains were first identified and then defined in the form of brain waves we know the alpha and the beta and the gamma delta theta brain waves the different types the different frequencies of brain waves that the electrical system of our brains use and so from about the 50s on uh, they've been trying to create devices that would read these waves but also be able to control devices of one kind or another. And the technology has moved ahead slowly. I mean, a lot of it was first in, you know, tested in animals. It still is to some extent being tested in animals. There are a number of different ways that you can identify and analyze these brain waves. Many people have had maybe an EEG, an electroencephalogram, if they've perhaps had a stroke or seizures or something like that, or whatever reason it might be to suspect brain injury, you know, a number of reasons you could have that. And those monitor brain waves, but there are quite a few different other ways of doing it. And researchers have tried them. 
to say that far advanced, well, since the 90s, people have been able to use these devices to control digital things like communicate with computers or play pong on on a computer screen you know different things like that nowadays you can actually buy headsets that will read the eeg um, and analyze it to use various controls especially with digital devices because communication can be a big problem for people who've suffered a brain injury or a spinal injury or have a debilitating disease of that kind, an affliction. There are many afflictions that create that um, affect the, the nervous system, the central nervous system or the brain. So a lot of the focus has been to help out people with these um, disabilities or, you know, deteriorating conditions. It is becoming very well developed. Um, some of the, well, many people would know Elon Musk's Neuralink company, yeah. which involves, you know, his process would involve implanting electrodes in the brain, much as I describe in Augment Nation. That is almost to the point of human trials. Um, there is another company called Synchron out of Australia that has been approved by the FDA in the States as well to um, use human trials. Its technology is a little bit different. They, they, if you've ever heard about stents, where they push um, probes up the, through veins and arteries to get to the site of whatever procedure they want to do, um, this is how that technology would work. They would feed, you know, devices up through the arteries into the brain and access the EEG readings at that uh, at that point through that sort of technology. You look at how AI has kind of exploded over the past six months. We've heard so much about it. This is kind of what I anticipate. I could have said, oh, maybe it'll be 50 years from now, but I truly believe it'll be sooner than that. So yes, 20 to 30 years from now, we could have brain-computer interfaces that are reading impulses from our minds to let us control devices or communicate, maybe even a direct interface with the internet and, and all the things that our smartphones do now. Wow. Okay. So I can see we <laughs> as people are walking a, a fine line because I can see the good of it. Of I'm, like, just as you were mentioning about people with um, health concerns, right? Yes. I can see the good of it, but I can also see how it can be manipulated as well. Um, and and here's the thing, it, this that just works right into my next question, um, because I think if see when I worked at, in the prosecutor's office at a Crown Council, okay, without giving away my age, I remember when computers came on board and they were um, a huge assist, huge assistance to us in the work we did. It changed how we did our work, right? Um, but as always with new technology, I remember the, I'll just say criminals, those who, yeah, criminals. Sure. Knew and com started committing crimes with that same technology. And it was the same old thing of our laws had to catch up to what the criminals were already doing. So I'm just thinking... I think there needs to be some sort of a 
Ethics Committee that's independent of government, political, and corporate influence? What do you think with this technology? Well, with all technologies, uh, almost of every kind, I would say there's, you know, potential for good, potential for bad. It's yeah. not that the technology is bad, it's how it's used. Yeah. And historically, laws have always been way behind the curve when it comes to things like that. So we have so many different of our, you know, elements of our technology where the laws are way behind. Look at the, all the privacy. And I mean, thematically, Augment Nation, although it's set in the future, is really about our society too. It's about the privacy and the access to our lives that we give up now with our smartphones. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we give it to governments, we give it to corporations, often just in return for a little extra convenience. And who knows how they're taking advantage of that? There's yeah. so much that we don't know, and most of us don't want to think about, but there are great potentials for good and for abuse of it as, as well. Not just the criminal element, but even marketing. Mm. And we see that time and time again. So yeah. should there be laws and you know ethical uh, ethics committees working on this? Absolutely. I would agree with that entirely. Yeah, but uh, it, it's always a slow process. The lawmakers are always way behind the curve. The reason I wrote the book, uh, as far as that goes, it's what I consider a cautionary science fiction story along the lines of 1984 and Brave New World and Handmaid's Tale and Fahrenheit 451. All of those, where there is a, a warning to say this technology is coming. Let's think about it now and finally get ahead of the curve and decide how we want it to be controlled or licensed or used and how, what, what, what we don't want. Yeah. Now is the time to decide what of it we want and what we don't want. Yeah. And you've just answered my last question. <laughs> oh, sorry. Excellent. No, no, no. That's <laughs> excellent. Excellent. So, okay. Thinking about your book and thinking about your character, Damon. L lighter? lighter 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 okay. yes yeah. oh gosh what i enjoyed was now it's almost like the physicality of damon adjusting to his implant and if you don't mind i would love to read just a few paragraphs uh, a couple of paragraphs and and a, and a couple of sentences that really jumped out at me before I, I ask my next question, if, if oh, you don't mind. Sure. No, okay. not at all. So, uh, Damon, he's um, in recovery and rehabilitation. And I'm kind of starting in the middle here. He has his implant. And here we go. That's what he'd been told. But it had never happened before. Should never have happened. He checked for the presence of long-stored data like a tongue probing a tooth. Yes, older data was still there. He took a mental sniff. There was lots of Wi-Fi and white fi in the area. The stale, rusty smell of older, slower frequencies probably installed five years ago, but also the ozone-sharp scent of the newest vintage. That made sense. He was in a hospital room, and there was probably a well-connected nursing station nearby. And that hit me. And then there was another one. It's, it's 
It's him coping. It, okay, this one here. It was yeah. strange that the old memory was so vivid. He relaxed and let his eyes lose focus. He didn't want old memories. He needed the fresh stuff of the past two days and plenty of it. Real memory was a capricious, oh, my tongue's twisting on this word, capricious thing, like the still surface of a pond. Touch it wrong and the ripples would distort the image it reflected beyond recognition. Bam, Scott. Oh, <laughs> I loved that. I loved that. So well, I'm very glad you enjoyed that. It yeah. And I, the thing of it is, is that as you go through the book, you realize that that's how Damon is learning to use this technology. He's basically using his existing senses as analogs. So he's smelling frequencies of radio, electromagnetic radiation, radio waves. You so, know, um, that's that's a way I think he would learn how to use it. So what I was wondering is okay so i'm I, I like i said i don't read science fiction so this may seem like a very basic question but just what kind of what gave you the idea for him to be pulling on those real memories to try to adjust and move forward like how how did how, I, i'm trying to say in an eloquent way how did you think of that <laughs> Well, uh, people listening should know that the book starts off uh, a little bit of a jump ahead and then goes back in time to his first implantation. But he has been, someone has tried to kill him and he doesn't know who, he doesn't know how because the trauma of it has blanked that, has wiped it from his digital memory, his wet memory, as his, his flesh memory, as he calls it. Um, so he has to try to figure that out. And where does that information lie? Is it in his brain and its own storage? Or is it in the storage of his computerized digital mechanical electronic implant? So I think that if you had that kind of device, you would eventually get to the point where you can't distinguish between your own memories and the information that you're getting from it. You may not be able to distinguish where ideas come from. You know, that's it's both a good thing and a bad thing because, you know, there be these memories, but did this memory come from my wet brain, my flesh brain, yeah. or is it something that was digitally recorded and stored by the implant, by the augment? So there's an element of that where he, from the very beginning, is going to search back through his memories to see if there are clues as to who it is who's tried to kill him and why. But, so, you know. wow. Okay, so I'm curious. Mm -hmm. Did you read a lot of science fiction growing up? I read all kinds of science fiction growing okay. up. I read um, voraciously, and yeah. I read all kinds of things from historical fiction to, you know, thrillers and uh, a lot of different things, nonfiction as well. But I did grow up on a lot of science fiction on TV as well as books. And my father was a, a huge science fiction fan. So he kind of nurtured that. And then we would have great discussions around the dinner table after dinner about these different books and you name it. So yes, the short answer is I, I read a lot of science fiction, still do. 
It has changed a lot, though. And, you know, there are many different kinds of it. There are some kinds of science fiction that are basically just adventure stories. They just one thing happens after another. The, the characters in, are in peril. They get out of it and whatever. And then there's a whole realm of thoughtful science fiction that deals with strong themes and social issues and that sort of thing. Now, you mentioned a very, very kind blurb that Robert J. Sawyer gave me for the book. Mm -hmm. And Rob's work is among some of my favorite science fiction. It's very accessible. Yeah. It's always about strong, important issues and themes. And, uh, you know, really compelling in the way it has real characters, realistic characters dealing with these issues that we can all identify with. So he does a great job with that. And and while I don't write like him, I've never tried to emulate his style. I do believe in that, uh, those same approaches, the same philosophy about science fiction. It should be about something, not just a story. Yes, it should be entertaining. And I think Augmentation, at the same time as it's cautionary, is a very entertaining, compelling story. But it also should be about something, make yeah. people think and 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 touch them with something yeah. important. Yeah. See, because after I finish and um and Spy Girls gets published, I have the first draft, rough draft, of a time travel, which deals with social issues that I'm seeing now. And what I need to do for this book, it's kind of like in an alternate universe. I need to make up a disease. You know, I, mm. I thought about it and it's not going to be something, it's, it's a disease that's not going to afflict everyone. It's just something particular to my heroine. Okay. And I looked, I looked at, <laughs> I looked at what, I don't want to say I, I looked at what diseases were out there or what conditions, health conditions. Well, sure you there, would. Right? You know, the internet is there for you. Yeah. But I wanted something different. Right. I wanted something totally different because I, I was thinking about individuals who may be, let's say, coping with a particular health health affliction. Right. So in your book, you have medical notes, <laughs> which are downright scary. Okay. So uh what was the research for that? Like I, I was just curious. Well, yeah. I, just the, the style that I wanted to write in, I wanted to have those clinical notes. These are clinical notes in the first part of the book that are about um, Damon's implants. And yeah. they are based on actual templates that I, I found of, of real clinical medical reports and the technology that is used for brain surgery and that kind of thing. So I had to do a lot of research to make those as accurate as I possibly could and give the book a feel of of reality, of verisimilitude. And so that's all in there. It, it goes for, like I said, maybe the first uh, third to a half of the book, probably a third of the book yeah. with those introducing the chapters. So there was a lot of research. There always is a lot of research in science fiction. You want to get it right. And you know that um, the audience often is quite well educated and will catch you if you blow something and you don't really want them to do that. Yeah. So whatever it is in each of my books is very different. Yeah. There is a lot of uh, research required. My first science fiction novel, the Primus Labyrinth 
is about traveling through the human bloodstream with a virus-sized nano-submersible. It's created by nanotechnology. But the patient that they're trying to help has these biochemical bombs implanted in their bloodstream that can create fatal blood clots. It's an extortion plot against the American president. Oh. So <laughs> I had to research so much about the circulatory system and about how the immune system works and how this could possibly be done how you could possibly you know scan uh, uh, the bloodstream to learn these what you need to know how the immune system works and what they'd be coping with i don't know if you ever saw the movie fantastic voyage from the 60s they have a shrink ray that shrinks a submersible down and they travel through the bloodstream yes i, I wanted to say how could that be done without a shrink ray because i don't think that can ever happen but nanotechnology is becoming very well developed, and they do have devices that they can move through the bloodstream. They're just not as sophisticated as this one, which I envision envisioned as a real submersible controlled by virtual reality. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So a lot of research to yeah. get in things like this, and you really just hope you don't get it wrong. And if you do, well, there's not nothing you can do about it at that point. Yeah. Well, I've with the one I'm going to be working on our oldest daughter is a nurse and i'm just waiting for the day it may be at her wedding <laughs> her reception in october because that's when i'll be uh about ready to start it um just saying to her okay ashley can you introduce to me introduce your mom to someone who knows about diseases you know because i i really want to make up um this particular disease for my character. So, uh, yeah, what what what, what yeah. we ask of our family members? Hey, <laughs> well, for that you probably will need to know about a lot about DNA. Yeah, because you'll want to have a disease that can actually happen and be able to describe how it affects the body. You know, yeah. in what way? What is the the process um, of how it how it works? So that kind of thing, you know, you'll have a pretty knowledgeable audience who won't be satisfied with you just saying, oh, this disease did that. Yeah. You, can, you can find books that say, oh, yeah, suddenly somehow everybody became mute or yeah. whatever. You know, you yeah. can do that. It depends on what audience you're you're looking for. I mean, yeah. I know my audience is going to be expecting a good explanation. Yeah. and And that's the thing I want to... I want to give a good explanation for sure. Okay, now another more scenes in this book of yours, Augment Nation. Uh, when they're in the hospital with the doctor and the hospital staff, and the doctor's trying to see what Damon remembers, and he's being shown pictures. And what I like is how you connect the reader to the scene, because I found it very realistic. And, uh, you know, there's Damon, you know, he's, he's trying to give out like a half nod because he senses someone is in the room, but he can't because it hurts. Right. And um, so I'm just wondering, I'm not saying I don't want to get too personal into your health history here, but <laughs> do, are you one of these? You must be one of you. Of course, we're all authors where you take 
situations, which may be even good or bad situations. And after it's over, you're thinking, I could use this in a book. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd be hard pressed to figure out actual direct connections from my life experience to scenes in the book, if that's what you mean. I haven't spent personal time uh, of my own being treated in hospital uh, to any degree. I have spent time with other people who have been. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, we're all kind of familiar with the hospital environment. And in this case, is it's a particular clinic because he's had this brain implant implanted surgically. And the doctor is trying to run him through some tests just to see how well it's working. Yeah. It's supposed to help him identify things. So is it working? If he shows him a picture of a tree, yeah. can he say, yeah, that's a tree? Yeah. Uh, and so... As an author, you're always trying to get inside the head of your characters as to how are they experiencing this circumstance that they're in? Yeah. What would they feel? What would they see? What would they touch? You know, as much as you can describe those things, that's how you bring the reader into that situation so they can identify with the characters. They always have to identify with the characters. You can write any story you want. And if the reader doesn't identify with the characters in some way, they're not going to get anything out of it. They're just going to read the story and forget it. It's not going to move them in any way. They're not going to develop any kind of loyalty to it. And it's not going to be compelling. So I think that's always important. If you can put yourself in the head of your character in that circumstance, whether it's something you experienced or not, it helps, I suppose, yeah. if you experience something like it. But but most times, I think we try to uh, relate it to something similar that we've experienced. Yeah, and try yeah. to find that relation. Yeah, it be, it, well, I guess it's because <laughs> on my own personal note, I've had oh man, my neck, the back of my neck has been so sore at, at certain times, and. Um, just like I said, that scene where he's trying to give it half nod, but I just thought, oh man, I, I understand, man. <laughs> you know, I understand Damon, right? Yeah. You you can, if you can say, I've been there, I know that. That boy, that hurts. That's that's uncomfortable. That's embarrassing. Whatever. Yeah. 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 And now another thing I'm finding with writing is you can write something. Actually, my husband and I had this discussion yesterday, but you have to always think of the after effects of whatever has just occurred. Like, how is that going to affect, you know, this person or that person or your own character, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, one another insight I liked with Damon was when he even asked himself, was he, was he even still human? You know, and I thought, whoa, okay. And how you've set up this novel, and we go into Damon's life as a teenager, I that is where I so started to connect with this character. Um, so some authors have told me they have moved chapters around. I know I have. I have totally moved chapters around. Was the book as it is now? Was that how you had planned it, planned it with the hospital, the incident at the beginning, and well, then now backstory? I think the backstory is very important yeah. uh, because you do need to understand where he's coming from. Yeah. But at the same time, 
I needed a framework as to how the story would proceed. So that's why I kind of had to have a prologue. You know, lots of people say you shouldn't have any anything like a prologue. Yeah. You should just start with what they call the defining incident, you know, or whatever their different terms for it and go from there. Yeah. And I think you need to say, well, in Damon's case, his whole life is defined by getting this implant in the very first place when he's 14. But most of the critical things that happen are when he's an adult. Yeah. So I had to kind of frame that with an introduction saying, here he is as an adult. Someone's tried to kill him. He's going to try to figure out what led to that and yeah. try to revive his memory as much as possible, starting with his earliest memories. His earliest memories from his implant come from when he first got it. Yeah. So he can use that. And so that was a natural way to lead into his backstory yeah. and to frame that that way of doing it. I guess so it wasn't a matter of moving things around, but recognizing that I really needed to introduce it and frame it in a certain way from the very start before telling, well, you know, his early years. Yeah. Where where the key events of his life don't necessarily happen until he's an adult. Yeah. Because that's and key battles again, again, you know, as becoming a battle, a battle where he has to lead this pushback against the abusers of the technology. That's when he's an adult. Yeah. Because that's where I really started connecting with Damon was, and it didn't even come across, it didn't, it didn't come across as backstory, like just how you've woven it into the plot. It, it, just it fits so nicely and i thought oh man i feel for this guy i feel for this guy when he's a you know he's a teenager and and just yeah well you oh, think about high school yeah. high school is even in earlier school years too i suppose but it's a very daunting situation it's very tough it's a yeah. hard time of life and people can be cruel and so naturally he comes back to school with his head shaved because he's yeah. had brain surgery so that makes him an outsider right away. Yeah. Then there are elements of his interaction with his brain augment that are are visible. He kind of seems to space out a little bit. So that is something that the other kids pick up on. And naturally, he has a hard time fitting in. Yeah. Well, I tell you, the mom and me, as I'm reading parts of this, I'm thinking with those other kids, leave him alone, <laughs> right? <laughs> Oh. Yeah, but uh, but uh, you know, if you can say some good things come out of even hard times, he yeah. does learn all kinds of different aspects and potential uses of this technology that he might not have learned otherwise if he hadn't had to, almost in self defense. So you know, it makes him what what doesn't kill you makes you stronger or whatever. Yeah, I guess yeah. it's like that. Well, it's there. There's a scene where you know basically the school bully he saves himself because of accessing that technology right and right, it's it's right. like yeah all right all right and i'm just like oh god thank you good <laughs> right <laughs> um so well that's that's kind of foreshadowing what the struggle is uh, that he's going to have to face later because he's going to have to face some very very powerful forces yeah. in society yeah. yeah in his later life yeah so this was kind of the question that uh, I had asked, uh, and I, you had already um, answered, and that was, I 
I had DC Gomez. She's from Texas. Right. And she writes uh, urban fantasy. And we had a discussion about social issues being woven into her novel. And the awareness, I think it is the awareness you are hoping to raise, right? Or you want to raise. Um, you know, I see individuals who say, you know, oh, big, I would get this at work. Okay. I would get this at the prosecutor's office when I was there about, oh, I'm not going to give you my address or my phone number because big brother's not watching me. And I, I'd want to say, um, you have a cell phone. <laughs> You're on Facebook, right? Uh, yes. You know, that cell phone has GPS. You know, I mean, like, like if you well, don't think Big Brother's not watching you. And I'm not saying that as like, I'm actually a positive person, right? But I just, I, it's just reality. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's just reality. And as I say, you know, I believe science fiction or any novel, I suppose, should be about something important. Yeah. And science fiction, while most people think of it as being something that takes place in the future, yeah. however far, near or far, <clears throat> it um, really is always about today. It's always about our existence, our lives and what we face, because that's what people are going to identify with. Yeah. And you know it's it's an it's an issue that they can relate to. Whether it, I'm talking about brain augments, but they can think about their smartphones or yeah. Big Brother. You know, Big Brother watching them. I've had people comment on those kinds of things too. And I mean, those are just reality. I'm not a a conspiracy theory type no. of person, and I think most conspiracy theories can be way out there and way ahead of the, the current state of technology. But with the technology I describe in augmentation, all bets are off. You've got direct access to people's minds. Who wouldn't pay fortunes for that? What governments wouldn't want access to that? You know, there's all kinds of ways it can be abused. And again, it already is. Yeah. Strange things happen to us. We had a situation. We went to, took our son out to lunch the other day at a restaurant. Today on my Facebook, I saw an ad for that restaurant. Well, uh, it could be a pure coincidence, yes. But, you know, months ago, there was we were having a discussion about a movie around the dinner table. I live in a, a rural area, and my internet is cellular. I don't have Siri activated on my phone. Yeah. I was in an area of my property that doesn't have a good cell signal at all. Yeah. But we're talking about this movie. And it, within a couple of days, there was a reference that popped up on, on Facebook or somewhere online for me that was about this movie. And it is not a hit movie. It's not a recent movie. It's a fairly obscure movie. Yeah. And you kind of go, how does that happen? Yeah. It could be a coincidence, but I don't really buy that. So if that's happening now with the technology that we've got now, yeah. imagine when you have an actual brain-computer interface that has a connection to the internet, and that works both ways. Yeah, It's a yeah. two-way street. Yeah. See, and I've had that too. I, I now own a scooter, and you know, we were looking up scooters on the internet. And just like you said, with Facebook, I open it up and oh, lo and behold, a few days later, 
ads for scooters started yeah. popping up in my feed. And I'm like, hello, how, what's going on here, right? And that's so, not even criminals. You know, I mean, that's yeah. not a criminal element at all. That's just marketing. That's yeah. just sales. So, you know, where can that go? And yeah. so what science fiction writers try to think of is here's an issue. Here's yeah. a, a concept, a new technology or whatever. Where can that lead? What can that lead to, good or bad? Yeah. And so that's what we tend to think about. Now, I mean, <clears throat> I don't always deal with immediate social issues. Sometimes they're bigger issues. My second science fiction novel, Naida, is yeah. about a man who finds an ancient alien artifact at the bottom of a lake when he's scuba diving, but there's something still alive, alive in that. And it actually comes and embeds itself in his body. It becomes a symbiote. And he and this alien being, because it's it's a personality, yeah, uh, have to learn to communicate, cooperate. But it, he doesn't know what its agenda is. Yeah. He's also afraid he may have triggered an alien invasion. Oh, so, you know, but the core theme of that is, is he still human? It's kind of the same situation that Damon faces there have been these changes. I have these capabilities most people don't have. I have this situation most people aren't in. Am I still human? Yeah. And what does it mean to be human? How far can a human be changed and yeah. still be human? Because we have all, all of these different prostheses. You know, yeah. I don't have to have brain augments. There are all kinds of different ways that humans could be changed by technology and science of one way or another. Is there a line where we're no longer human? Yeah. So, you know, that's a question explored in that book. And I, I try to to find something like that to explore that's interesting and of relevance to people and they'll relate to in some way. Well, it's funny because uh, you're leading into my next question. Because <laughs> I was going to ask you, <laughs> on a lighter side, how did you get involved in scuba diving? <laughs> oh, well, I, that was just something I always wanted to do. I um, had loved old TV shows about it and things like that. When I was growing up, it just seemed like such a cool thing to do that yeah. when I finally got to the point where I could take scuba diving lessons, my wife and I did that years ago. And um, and we progressed fairly far. We got fairly advanced in it. Don't do that as much anymore, but uh, I still love it. It's just, it's a great, great thing. And uh, if you have you ever done it or have you even snorkeled very much? I've I've snorkeled just a tiny, tiny bit. Yeah. Well, I find that, and especially in places like the Caribbean, where yeah. you find all these coral reefs with so much life on them, people enjoy the the environment of the Caribbean with all the beautiful plants, colorful flowers, and everything else. Well, let me tell you, below the waves, it's even more beautiful. There is just a whole other world there. And it's absolutely glorious. And if you don't at least snorkel on some of these coral reefs, and even better, scuba dive, you just don't experience it. You're missing out a whole a, a whole other level of, of the world. Now, northern Ontario lakes, where I live, there's not nearly that much to see. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. it's still an, a great experience. It's still kind of a different world. Okay. So, it, which is it Naida? Naida? Naida. Was that the one? That's the one where he's you know, scuba diving and finds this. And he at first thinks this thing has enveloped him. He knows it's alien. It's yeah. got to be an alien artifact. It's, it's obvious. So this thing envelops him and saves him and lets him breathe under the water when he thinks he's going to drown. He thinks it must be a survival suit of some alien technology. 
Yeah. No, it's alive. And Naid is actually the name that he gives the uh, alien symbiote as he gets to communicate with it, because it's the name of uh, an ancient name for a water nymph. Okay. <clears throat> and its species was water-based, really, more more of a water species than uh, than humans are. Yeah. But it's it's just an interesting way of exploring. The, uh, Naida the symbiote gives him some special abilities, particularly in water. Yeah. But uh, it's a personality, you know. Yeah. Do you yeah. you got suddenly two people sharing that body, and what's that like? Oh. So you know, but there's always a thriller element too. I all of my novels so far published have thriller elements as well. Yeah, Augment Nation does too. Yeah, you know, um, and so there's there's that. So I'm just thinking now another possible sci-fi, you know, sci-fi novel dealing with you're saying how beautiful what a beautiful world it is underneath in the water now everyone is talking about space and going to mars and you know like another civilized like building up another civilization on mars space colonies and things sure mm -hmm. how about going underwater you know and i'm not even thinking about james the james cameron movie okay but as humans we can put sub. We have submarines, so couldn't we build a world underneath the water? Not that I would, because I I'm of the view that I would like to have <laughs> a part of this world which is not touched by human hands. Okay, <laughs> right. Well, that's a problem, right? I mean, you know, you know that as we develop technology to spend time underwater, we will exploit it, and probably that will be the reason we develop that technology in the first place. And it is being developed. I mean, you know, the very basic form is, of course, oil rigs in the ocean and the technology they've had to develop for that. But there are many science fiction versions of a story that take place underwater. I have one that's not not published yet. <clears throat> Might be down the road. I still have about five novels written in various forms. They're all pretty much complete, but not necessarily edited that um, haven't been published yet. But this one does take place in a habitat below the sea. Oh, cool. So it's more like um, the movie Sphere, the Michael Crichton book and movie Sphere, if people have seen that, or The Abyss, which is a James Cameron movie, maybe yeah. the one you were thinking of. And um, yeah, you know, those are things, those are interesting places to be. Although the very bottom of the ocean, it's dark. It's yeah. absolutely lightless. Yeah. So you know, would you want to live there? No, you probably would want to live, if anywhere, in some of the shallower places like the Caribbean, where you've got light. It stays light down to a few hundred feet. You've still got some natural light getting down there. Cool, cool. Okay, so my wrapping it up here, my latest question I'm asking authors is, what is your proudest moment as an author, Scott? Oh my gosh, I. I don't know if I have a single proudest moment. Okay. I mean, it's always a big thrill when your first book gets published yeah. and your first book gets launched. And as you mentioned, my first book is not a science fiction book. I was a radio announcer. And so it was about the radio industry and it's called Dead Air, but it was nominated, um, shortlisted <clears throat> for a Northern Lit Award from libraries in Northern Ontario. Cool. That was prou a proud moment. But I think 
it's every time someone buys and reads one of my books and comes back to me and says, I loved your book. I couldn't put it down. Uh, It moved me so much, or it affected me in this way, or whatever it is that they talk about. And you know that that book has really impacted them. Even if it's just they really enjoyed it, that's okay. You know, or if it moved them in a way, or if it really made them think about an issue. One of those happens, you know, they happen regularly, but never too many times. And I'm sure you know the same thing, Joanna. It's just the best feeling in the world when somebody comes to you and says that. So that would be it. You know, not a single proudest moment, just every time someone comes to me and I know that they truly mean that that book was important to them. They really loved it. Yeah. uh, Yeah, I agree. I agree. So Scott, what's next? Last question. What's next? Is Or I should say, because I know sometimes authors are under contract and can't really well, divulge. But- no, no, no. I'm uh, I, I'm publishing the next, I'll be publishing the next one myself and putting it out. And I'm working on that one. So there's two what's next. There's what's next to be published and, and what's the latest work in progress, I suppose. But as far as the next one to be published, uh, it takes place, well, it postulates that a couple of within the next couple of centuries, the one percenters will leave a very badly damaged earth. They will abandon it to live in space colonies and abandon many, many people that they leave behind. Then leaving 500 years for the the earth to heal somewhat, they determine they will come back. They've promised they will come back. And the story is said at the time when they decide they are going to return to Earth and reestablish relations with the people that are still on Earth. So you've got a dual story of an Earth man and a woman from one of these space colonies out near the moon Mm -hmm. and how their lives interact. Uh, But it's called Indigent Earth, and it thematically has a lot to do with colonialism, as you might imagine from that description. Yeah. So that I'm working on with my editor now, and um, we have a great working relationship. I hope to put that out within a couple of months, but I haven't set a publication date for that. I really enjoy the story. It's it's not as much a thriller as it is an adventure story, but of course, as I say, it has important things to say about colonialism and all the related issues to that, cool. as well as, as wealth and inequality. Yeah. in our world because there's certainly no equality when it comes to wealth in our world. Yeah, I agree. Well, Scott, this has been such an interesting conversation. I really enjoyed it. I've been really enjoying your novel, Augment Nation, and it's out now. Yes. It is out. Yes, it okay. came out in October actually and um, you know, has had good reaction. Uh, you know, the the publishing industry makes it difficult as I'm sure you know to get attention. There's so much out there. It's always difficult to, you know, get um, a large visibility. So it's still going and um, still growing, which is good to see. And then, you know, I have, I have uh, three science fiction novels previous to that. I'll be bringing another one out. And a lot of people who don't read science fiction would like my novel Dead Air too. But um, yes, they're available at all the regular outlets online that you would buy books. If you wanted to get it through a bookstore, you'd need to order them. But you could do that, both ebooks, um, print books. I'm putting out the Primus Labyrinth in audiobook soon. 
I I actually do record audiobooks for other people for pay because of yeah. being a radio broadcaster, but I'm pretty slow at getting my own books out there. So yeah. I'm working on that. Okay. Okay. Well, Scott, this has been fantastic. Thank you. Well, thank you. It's been a great pleasure, Joanna. And uh, thank you for having me and inviting me onto your podcast.